What a way to begin a new year, entering into the story of a prophet, an obscure prophet in the Old Testament, and to listen to a story week after week about the justice of God, the judgment of God being outpoured upon the enemies of God's people. It's probably not the way you wanted to begin the new year. Maybe you were hoping for something that had a little bit more light and life to it than Nahum the prophet. But here we are in the midst of this story, and here we are trying to see the gospel of Jesus Christ even in Nahum. This evening in Nahum 3, we will see two things. The bulk of Nahum 3 is about the extreme justice of God executed upon Nineveh and the Assyrians. But on the back end of this vision, you will also find the tender mercies of God for His people that come to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We're going to make our way through Nahum 3 this evening, all of Nahum 3, but I want you to know that all of this message, all of this vision is moving towards the revelation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if at the beginning you find yourself feeling overwhelmed or burdened the way Nahum the prophet felt burdened and overwhelmed, Just know that God in His mercy has provided a balm for your soul in the person and work of Christ. In Nahum 3, the vision opens again with not just the desolation and destruction of Nineveh by the armies of Babylon, but what we find here is the reason why God wants to bring judgment upon the city of Nineveh. God will execute His judgment upon Nineveh with extreme prejudice and with exact precision. In other words, Nineveh will receive from God His just desserts. He will get from God exactly what He deserves. Why? Because He has worked hard for it. He expects a return for his labors, and God will pay him the wages that he has earned. And I'm referring to the city of Nineveh as a he, in keeping with the way Nineveh has been described in this book of Nahum. The Apostle Paul tells us that to the one who works, wages are credited not as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Well, what does that have to do with this vision? It has everything to do with it. Because in this vision, we see God exercising an obligation to pay Nineveh what Nineveh has worked for. And yet, in the midst of God judging Nineveh and giving Nineveh what Nineveh deserves, God in His tender mercy and grace gives life to Judah, gives life to His people, not because she has earned it or merited His favor, but because God loves her and in His good pleasure wants to provide mercy to her. So what we will see in Nahum 3 is this. 
But the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of eternal life in Christ is available to those who trust the Lord. Hear the word of God from Nahum 3, and if you are willing and able, I invite you to stand and hear God's word from Nahum 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with water round her, her rampart at sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength, Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honored men, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There will be fire to devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spreads its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like clouds of locusts, sitting on the fences in a cold of day. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear news about you clap their hands over you. For upon you, upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add His blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of His Word. And all of God's people said, may be seated. It could be disorienting to listen to the prophets and read the prophets and wonder what in the world are they talking about and to whom are they speaking. And for our purposes, we might ask, where in the world is Jesus Christ and His gospel in this vision? Well, if you'll bear with me a moment, we will see the answer to these questions as we make our way through Nahum 3. Notice that Nahum begins with a very serious word, the word woe. 
Woe means condemned or damned. Nineveh is doomed and destined for destruction. But why? And immediately the prophet goes into explaining that Nineveh is under God's judgment because Nineveh broke God's moral law and fell short of God's glory. She murdered. She bore false witness. She coveted. The wages of sin is death. There will be no mercy for Nineveh. God will judge Nineveh with extreme prejudice and exact justice. He will give her the wages that she has earned according to her works. Now we might read this and wonder how bad was the situation in Syria and Nineveh? Why all of this bloody and violent language? Well, I will spare you the details, but commentator after commentator makes it clear that reading about the history of Assyria and her conquests and the way she treated her enemies is not for the queasy. They did terrible, horrible things to their enemies. And to give you only a hint of what they might have done, I draw to your remembrance a scene from The Princess Bride. Many of you remember that scene where Wesley is laid out on a bed and Prince Humperdinck comes in. And I will simply suffice it to leave it to your imagination to say that what Wesley says to Humperdinck is what the Assyrians did to their people. They threatened to remove different parts of their bodies slowly but surely at different times so that they could hear things and feel pain. They wanted to intensify the pain and one account of a king of Assyria, he talks about putting a ring into the jaw of an enemy and a dog collar around his neck and making him sit at a gate as if he were a dog to guard the gate of the city of Nineveh. Others describe what they did with their chariots and running down their enemies and leaving their bodies scattered across fields. And on and on this goes. Historians have said that the Assyrians and their famous rulers rate in popular imagination just below Adolf Hitler and Genghis Khan for their cruelty, violence, and sheer murderous savagery. Again, I want to spare you the details in here, but I do want you to know what we're dealing with and why why God's judgment comes against Assyria and against Nineveh. The Assyrian army, one historian says, was the most technologically advanced of its day. They were the first to make extensive use of mass-produced iron weaponry. And so the comparisons to Nazi Germany are justified in many ways. We're talking about an aggressive, murderous, vindictive regime. And this is what was up against the people of God in Judah. This is what was threatening the people of God. Now, why do they do all of these horrible, terrible things? Well, Nahum tells us why in verse 4. You've heard the saying in your life that behind every good man stands a better woman. Well, here we see that in this story, behind a bad man stands a worse woman. In verse 4, Nahum tells us that Assyria did what Assyria did. Her kings did what they did. Nineveh the city did what it did. All for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples. 
In other words, they did all of these terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things for the sake of a goddess that was back of the culture, religion, and politics of Assyria. They did all of these things for the sake of Ishtar, the world spirit of that time. And as we see throughout the scriptures, as, you're, as the prophets rail against different nations and cities, this goddess had done what many other goddesses had done. Now, there are no other gods or goddesses in the world, but people imagine them to be the case and, and create all kinds of rules and regulations to appease them. And that's what was happening in Nineveh. You find here that Ishtar, this goddess, had seduced and deceived Assyria and other nations to worship and to serve her, to sacrifice human flesh to her, and to stuff her coffers with material wealth. Nahum regards Nineveh's unbridled and idolatrous pursuit of money and sex and power as a religious zeal, acts of false worship to a false goddess. Now, it would be easy for us to sit here in the 21st century and say, that's superstitious and that's ridiculous, and we would never do those things in our day. But I want to encourage you to take a moment just to think about your nation, your state, and your city. What do people crave? What do they chase after? What do you pursue and desire and lust after in your own life? How do people spend their time and money? What are you invested in? What are you watching? What are you doing day after day? What are you working for? What do you dream about? Why do you do it the way you do it? Well, we all have our motives, don't we? We all have our reasons. But we know that one of the powers at work in our life is the power of idolatry. Idolatry is just the worship of a god or a goddess that is made in the image and likeness of self. And that's what's happening in Nineveh. That's what's happening in Assyria. You've seen the sign in your car, you're driving down the road, it says objects and mirror are closer than they appear. God's word is a mirror. And when we look into the mirror, let me assure you that the objects in that mirror are much closer than they appear Do not say to yourselves, that's Nineveh, that's Assyria, long ago, far away, nothing to do with me. No, this is very close to home, isn't it? We've seen in our previous studies of other letters and books of the Bible, 1 John and Revelation, for example, that we live in a world that has idolized money, sex, and power, much like these other nations. People have gone crazy for luxury and pleasure and control. We might even say that the spirit of Ishtar is still at work in our world, still at work in America, in North Texas, and believe it or not, in our own hearts. We've seen this before, that this spirit is antichrist. It's the world spirit of infotainment, the seductive power behind false trinities of politics and religion and sports. It's the evil force behind sex trafficking and internet porn and sexual promiscuity and all other kinds of sexual confusions. She's drunk with the blood of countless unborn children slaughtered in the womb. 
She's the seductive woman behind the screen. She is the search engine who receives your wishes and answers your prayers with the click of a mouse or the push of a finger. She promises to give you exactly what you want, and yet she fails to deliver what she promises. So again, I say to you, the spirit of Ishtar seems to be at work even among us in our world today, in our nation, in our cities, and perhaps even in our hearts. What we see as we look at the world through the lens of the prophets is that the more, th- the more things change, the more they remain the same. And that's why we're counseled in Scripture. The Spirit of Christ tells us, do not love the world or things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him for all that is in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does God's will lives forever. What is God's will? What does it mean to do that? In a very basic sense, it means to listen to His sacred Word. It means to love Jesus Christ. It means to live by the Holy Spirit. It means to live against the lust of the world, the flesh, and the devil. It means put up resistance. Speaking of resistance, verse 5 of this chapter says, Behold, I am against you, declares the the Lord of hosts. Now, the behold, I am against you is not a word to you. It's a word to Nineveh and not even Nineveh per se, but beyond Nineveh to this goddess. Nineveh simply embodies the spirit of the goddess. And when God says, I am against you and I will lift your skirts over your face and make nations look at your nakedness. He's not talking about the city itself, although that is a part of it. He's talking about the goddess that the city serves. I mentioned last week that when God says, I am against you, that must be a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying thought to people who know the gospel because we believe that if God is for us, no one can be against us. Imagine if God is against you, who could ever be for you? And why would it matter if they were? Here God is against this spirit of Ishtar that's operating in Nineveh. The you here refers to this great prostitute, this image of Ishtar that's mentioned in this chapter. Uh, Gregory Cook says in his commentary on this that these verses describe the cultic desecration of the goddess Ishtar. After God destroys her city, Nineveh, he would drag this goddess of love and war before all of her loyal subjects, remove the erotic facade, and show the world the true demonic horror that she was. God exercises judgment so that a cosmic madam will no longer have the power to prostitute God's people. And then he goes on to say, may God do so again today. We desperately need him to deliver us from our intoxication with her charms. And that's true, isn't it? How many people do we know who are enslaved to the spirit of Ishtar, so to speak, who are enslaved to the goddess of this age? who've given their hearts and their minds and their lives to her charms and promises. We need that power to be broken. We need her to be dragged out into the public square and exposed for the fraud that she is. That's what's going to happen here. 
prophet goes on to describe some of the other things that Assyria had done. For example, in verses 8 through 10, he, he describes that the Assyrians went down to Egypt and they overthrew this city that appeared to be everyone, to be a city that was unconquerable. A city that had all the natural and military advantages somehow was overthrown by the Assyrians. And the prophet's point in bringing that up is if that city, which was unconquerable, which was in a safer place than any other city, was brought down by you, imagine what will happen to your city sitting out in the middle of the desert, exposed to all of the elements and armies coming against it. If Thebes in Egypt cannot withstand an onslaught of an army, much less Nineveh. And then he goes on to say in verses 11 through 13 that what Thebes experienced is what Nineveh will experience. Fallen Nineveh will move around like a staggering, disoriented, paranoid man. Assyria's fortified cities are ripe for the picking. They are going to fall one after another. A devourer is coming. An eater is coming to bring them down. All of that to say that what comes around goes around. What you reap, you will sow. What Assyria did to Egypt is now going to happen to Assyria. Babylon is going to do to Assyria what Assyria did to Egypt, and then Babylon will be devoured by someone else. All of this is happening under God's sovereign watch and control. Now, I realize that right then we just got into some deep weeds and a lot of insider baseball. So let me try to bring you back a little bit to, uh, to the here and now. What I want you to see in this story is that Nineveh is warned that even if all necessary preparations are made for her siege, she is going to fall. There is nothing she can do to withstand the onslaught of God's judgment against her. There's nothing he can do. There's nothing the king can do. There's nothing the city can do. There's nothing the goddess can do to protect these people. As James puts it in his letter, the sun rises with squares scorching heat and withers the grass, it, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also with the rich man he will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Nahum had said, had described the leaders, the scribes, the, the journalists, and the, uh, the military geniuses of, uh, of Assyria, described them as grasshoppers and locusts sitting on a fence, right? And so when the sun rises, they're gone. They scatter. They can't take it. God pronounces the fate of the king Describes him as fallen, as being wounded. His nobles are dead. Everyone scattered. The world will rejoice at the news of the downfall and death of Assyria. That brings us down to verse 19. Now, question of questions. What in the world does this have to do with Jesus Christ and with all of you? Well, we say this week after week, but the vision of the destruction of Nineveh by the uh, Babylonians is certainly what's at stake here. That's the first thing you see. The prophet is showing us the how and why God judges Nineveh and the Assyrians. But as we've said before, the prophets also give us a theology of history. They show us how and why God judges the world and not to distinguish between Yahweh in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament, we bring it all together to see that this is a true picture of what God does to his enemies 
and to the enemies of his people. More to the point, this is a true picture of what Jesus Christ will do to his enemies, to the world, the flesh, the devil, and even death at the end of all things. Let me bring it home for you. Each and every week, we confess that we believe in Jesus Christ, the Father's only Son, our Lord, who sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whence He shall come to judge the living and the dead. And each and every week we come to this table and we eat the body and blood of Christ. And every time we eat the body and blood of Christ, we preach the gospel to each other. We are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. But what will happen when He comes? What do we expect to happen? Will we believe that when Jesus comes from heaven to judge the living and the death on earth, He will come as King of kings and Lord of lords. He will come not by mistake, not by accident. He will come for the purpose of bringing judgment on the living and the dead. All of this matters because, as our shorter catechism puts it, Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and all our enemies. So for those who are in Christ, all of this is good news. All of this is good news intended to comfort and console our hearts. It is a gospel mystery, but I want to make it as clear to you as humanly possible and more so praying that the Spirit will make it clear to you that what Yahweh says He will do to Nineveh is precisely what Jesus says He will do to Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. All of that's from Revelation. But why? It's because like Nineveh, they are antichrist. They are contra Jesus. They're against Him. They will put up resistance and wage war against Him, but He will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called faithful and chosen. So in contrast to the kings of the earth and the gods of this age, Jesus is revealed to us as the one who is faithful and true. He judges and makes war with righteousness. His eyes are like flames of fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a secret name that only he knows. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and he is called the Word of God. He is the leader of the armies of heaven, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will shepherd them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Yahweh says that he will come and judge Nineveh and Assyria and the goddess behind them, let's not cordon that off as if it only happened in the Old Testament and it will never happen again. Let us keep in mind that the same God, Yahweh, who brought judgment on Nineveh and on Assyria is the God who is coming in the person of Jesus to judge the living and the dead. It's not a popular vision to have these days. People like to think of Jesus as this hipster cool guy, this mild-mannered carpenter, Some people like to think of him as a protester in the street, a revolutionary, perhaps. 
maybe a guru, a philosopher. But very few people like to think of Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. And here's the vision that we need, this glorious vision of Jesus. We must see him as he is, King of kings and Lord of lords. And in response, know that we owe him our allegiance. We owe him our allegiance. The Lord Jesus Christ is the King of glory. He is the true and better Son who rises and shines out of darkness. In the past, that rising sun scattered his enemies at Nineveh and gathered his people in Judah. In the past, that rising sun scattered the prince of darkness at the cross and then gathered all people to himself at that same cross. And even now, throughout the world, Jesus, the Son, rises to gather all people into His church, all of His people into His church, and to scatter all His enemies into the world. It was at the cross that God disarmed the principalities and the powers in Christ, but it is at the second coming that the deceitful dragon, the seductive serpent, will perish in the lake of fire and sulfur and be tormented day and night forever and ever. Our brothers and sisters, we should be standing and cheering and giving Jesus a standing ovation for He came into the world to destroy the devil's works and He accomplished His mission. And now the ruler of the world has been cast out. The God of this age has been deposed. The serpent's head has been crushed. And so we could echo the words of Nahum the prophet spoken to the king of Assyria and apply them to the dragon and say, O serpent, O dragon, O ruler of this world, there is no healing for your crushed head. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the good news about you clap their hands over you for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil, your sin, and your death. Like the people of Assyria, once we were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. But now, by God's grace, we have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. And unlike the king of Assyria, unlike the king of Assyria, our king bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his grievous wounds, you have been healed from your deadly sins. Brothers and sisters, we have the good news of the prophet Nahum more fully confirmed for us in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the sun rises in our hearts. For because of the tender mercy of our God, The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.